This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program... People feel like if you don't call it genocide, then it's not serious. And that's a mistake. We have a genocide convention and we don't have a crimes against humanity convention, at least not yet. What are the implications of calling something genocide or a crime against humanity? Our topic today is a tough one. We're going to discuss genocide. It's a difficult and always shocking subject, but it's also a term we've been hearing from political quarters recently. In a last-minute move that will likely further worsen tensions between China and the US, outgoing Secretary of State Mike Pompeo tweeted that Beijing's treatment of Uyghur Muslims amounted to genocide and crimes against humanity. These acts are an affront to the Chinese people and to civilized nations everywhere. The People's Republic of China and the CCP must be held to account. Those comments by outgoing U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo were later backed by Canada's parliament, who also suggested the way China is treating the Uyghurs could amount to genocide. And it got me thinking, genocide isn't actually a term we hear that often. Very few individuals have ever been convicted of the crime. So how does the law determine if genocide is or isn't taking place? I want to make clear right from the start, though, that our choice of this topic is not to point fingers at particular leaders, governments or countries, but to have an informed discussion about what exactly this crime is and what lessons can be learnt from history about how to prevent it. I've got a great panel today to discuss this. Paula Gaeta, Professor of International Law at Geneva's Graduate Institute, Ken Roth, Executive Director of Human Rights Watch, and our regular analyst, Daniel Warner. To start things off, I'm going to come to you first, Paula. Basic question, define genocide for us. Yes, thank you so much. Of course, there is a legal definition of genocide, which is enshrined in the Genocide Convention adopted in 1948, which defines genocide as a series of acts. It's, there is an exclusive list of these acts, including murder, uh, that are committed um, with intention to destroy a national, racial, religious or ethnic group in whole or in part as such. So this is the definition of genocide, which has been then repeated without any many, many, many major change in all subsequent um, treaties or instruments establishing international criminal courts and tribunals. And the current International Criminal Court is working with the same definition of genocide, which was in 1948. And what is interesting is that it has never changed at the international level. I've got another basic question. I was actually discussing the fact that I was going to do this program with friends and family. Um, and that also showed me that it is a term that is, is not necessarily that well understood. So under law, genocide doesn't necessarily have to involve actually killing. Yes, indeed, because, I mean, I think that, first of all, we shall clarify that the way people understand the term genocide may mean not to the same as genocide has been defined. 
And why is it so? Because as I said, the definition of genocide enshrined in the Genocide Convention is very strictly construed. It, it, it relates uh, uh, primarily to the individual criminal responsibility for the crime of genocide. And this definition was construed in particular having in mind the Holocaust, in particular having in mind the Holocaust. For instance, the genocide definition includes the prevention of births within a group as a genocidal act and does not include rape as a form of genocide. And we have seen that in Rwanda, rape was perpetrated uh, uh, as a form of genocide. So you see the, the definition of genocide includes, for instance, the so-called concentration camp form of genocide. So the definition very much reflects the particular period of, of time of the history of humanity. Judges from Britain, America, Russia and France assemble in Nuremberg's courthouse. Empowered to impose sentence of death or such punishment as it may consider just, the tribunal sits in judgment upon 20 leaders of the Nazi party. Paula, you were saying, of course, that the term dates back to the Second World War and the events of the Second World War. Danny, I know you have been looking at the, the history of this. In fact, even at, at the time, there was a certain amount of controversy among in, in international lawyers, wasn't there, about this term? Well, it was a tremendous controversy uh, going back to before Nuremberg, actually, the trials after the Second World War. And the question was what to do with the Nazi criminals. Uh, and at that time, the, the word genocide didn't exist. There was a Polish Jew uh, who was teaching in the United States, Raphael Lemkin, who came up with the term genocide. But on the other hand, as wonderfully described in Philip Sands' book, East-West, there was the famous British lawyer, Hirsch Lauterbach. And Lauterbach thought of crimes against humanity. So there was a debate uh, in terms of what to do with the Nazi criminals. And actually, Lauterbach won. And the, uh, the term crimes against humanity was used in the Nuremberg trials. Genocide convention, as Paolo said, didn't come until 1948, but it was really Lemkin who began to use that as a legal term. Ken Roth, even now, crimes against humanity is a term we hear much more often than genocide. You told me that human rights groups um, are also quite, well, let's not say reluctant, but you use the term genocide very sparingly. It's not one that you're going to leap to and say, yes, that's what's happening. Well, there's there's almost a kind of a, a rhetorical inflation these days where um, people feel like if you don't call it genocide, then it's not serious. And that's a mistake. I mean, as Danny is outlining, um, you know, crimes against humanity are incredibly severe. And indeed, genocide is a crime against humanity. Um, as is persecution and, you know, various forms of, of systematic, you know, murder and the like. You know, to, to be accused of a crime against humanity is a very big deal. And there's a tendency, I think, to feel like, oh, that doesn't count. You know, we got to call it genocide. Um, unless it's genocide, it's not serious. And that's just not the case. And so um, Human Rights Watch tends to, you know, apply the terms of the treaty as Paula outlined. And if they fit, they fit. But if they don't, we'll call it what it is, you know, systematic war crimes, crimes against humanity, what have you, um, which are also very serious. And, and we're just trying to maintain these category distinctions to suggest that, you know, the world should stop, say, crimes against humanity, even if it's not genocide. And I think we have saw this, you know, even, you know, going back to the Rwandan genocide, where um, there's a kind of a sense that 
if it's genocide, the world really has to act to stop it. But if not, that, you know, maybe you don't. Now that's a mistake. So we um, maintain the distinctions, but we also press the world to respond to other mass atrocities, you know, regardless of what the legal name is. Paola, I saw you, you had your hand up there for a moment. I'm just thinking about this crimes against humanity versus genocide. Two different things. You know, on the statute book, one crime is viewed as, as worse than another in many other things, you know, burglary versus burglary with assault, for example. Does the law view genocide as worse than crimes against humanity or is it just different? I agree with Ken that, of course, there is no hierarchy among those crimes. And this has been repeated many times by international criminal courts and tribunals. They are all very serious, okay? And clearly the same act, the same murder, the same inhuman acts may be classified as a war crime, a crime against humanity and an act of genocide at the same time. So this is not the question of the hierarchy of the uh, atrocities here. But there is a point that I think is important, that I think is important to underline here. First, that we have a genocide convention and we don't have a crimes against humanity convention, at least not yet. And this might explain the, the fact that there is a so-called so uh, inflation of the use of the term genocide, because there is a treaty uh, uh, that has led many states uh, since the adoption of this convention to incorporate the crime of genocide within their national criminal legislation, while the, 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 the path for crimes against humanity has been much longer. Uh, consider that in 1998, when the Rome Statute for the International Criminal Court was negotiated, they were fighting on the definition of crimes against humanity, while for genocide, they just cut and paste from the Genocide Convention. So let's say crimes against humanity, although they have their origin in the Nuremberg Tribunal, they have been quite controversial in terms of the definition until the adoption of the Rome Statute. The 6th of April, 1994. The Rwandan president is killed when his plane is shot down. With confusion over who's to blame and the government in disarray, the killing of Tutsis begins. Phnom Penh, June 1979. On the day of victory, the Khmer Rouge began to empty all of Cambodia's cities and towns at gunpoint. They went on to starve or slaughter hundreds of thousands, perhaps two million Cambodians. Nobody knows. Danny, I saw you wanting to come in there because I'm, I'm interested really. For example, you know, Rwanda. I think it's and Ken Roth, you can you can answer this as well. Um, is 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 agreed by most to be a, a genocide. Um, Cambodia, not. Danny, I'll come to you. Yeah, first. I want to come back to something Ken said as the non-lawyer here. I mean, my point is, what's the difference? Uh, Ken said distinctions without a difference, and in fact. Instead of looking perhaps, Paul, at the legal aspect, what are the implications of calling something genocide or a crime against humanity? Because when you get into the field and when you get into holding people responsible, uh, it's very difficult to see Ken's point about preventing. Uh, I mean, I think that's really crucial because we're always dealing here with individuals. And even if you say it's genocide, what do you do in those situations? You have a couple of individuals who have been uh, taken to court for certain acts. But what does it mean to prevent these acts? Ken, that's really the issue for me. Frankly, the duty to try to stop mass atrocities doesn't really vary depending whether you have this you know, added element 
of an intent to eradicate the group in a whole or in part. If you're just, you know, slaughtering people, you know, on political grounds, say, you still have a, a duty to try to stop that. And, you know, genocide, I mean, I think this is one of your questions about, you know, why is Cambodia considered questionable? There's no question that the Khmer Rouge, you know, slaughtered, what, 2 million Cambodians. Um, so that's a, you know, a mass atrocity. It's a crime against humanity. Um, the reason it's not, um, you know, or possibly not a genocide, and there, there's an interpretation that would make it a genocide, focusing on sort of the Muslim minority within Cambodia. But for the most part, people were selected for reasons of politics, for reasons of education, um, and not for, you know, the four reasons that Paula outlined, you know, having to do with nationality, ethnicity, race, or religion. Um, and, you know, I, I often think of this as sort of Stalin's contribution to the genocide convention, you know, that he was, um, you know, perfectly happy to condemn the things that he wasn't doing, but large-scale political persecution, which he was doing, he just wanted to make sure that that wasn't touched. And so the genocide convention doesn't preclude mass slaughter on political grounds. And you can pick up, you know, all the people of X party, and that's not genocide, you know, even though it's, it, it's a crime against humanity if you kill them. So this is just, you know, it's just one of the weaknesses of international law. It's also why we shouldn't look at genocide as, you know, the, the sole definition of what's really, really bad, because there are lots of things that are really, really bad that may just not add up to genocide. In the cities, Stalin mobilized an army of enthusiastic young communists to help crush anyone who might oppose his plans. Do you think, though, that perhaps the the reluctance, the the people don't use the term very often, or at least human rights experts, that is perhaps that the definition of it is quite narrow. But has it meant that equally serious crimes against humanity isn't viewed in the your average person's head as so serious? Of course, with Cambodia, there was a lot of discussion whether or not it was genocide for the reasons Ken has explained. But again, from the criminal law perspective, as Ken knows very well, there has been the trial of Nuan Chea, okay, one senior member of the regime of Pol Pot. And he has been found responsible for genocide committed in Cambodia, but only for the massacres he had committed against ethnic and religious groups, while for the massacres he had committed against the intellectuals for political reasons. So this was considered crimes against humanity. So this is an example of the way the, the genocide convention is very restrictive because it seems it seems to confine itself to the possibility of defining uh, genocide only crimes committed with intention to to destroy certain specific groups. Listening to all three of you just now, I was wondering, some people might say, you know what, this term genocide actually isn't helpful because of the popular perception of it has somehow downgraded other really, really, as Ken said, terrible crimes. Ken, did you want to come in there? And Danny, then I'll come to you. Sure. Well, look, I mean, I think, Imogen, um, in terms of does it focus on, you know, race, ethnicity, religion? I mean, yes, but that's its advantage, actually because that's why people are targeted in these cases. And, and so there is something to be said for making that clear and for noting, you know, not simply that, you know, we're picking out, say, the Muslims or the, you know, the Blacks or whatever to, to target, but that we're doing this with the intent of really destroying, at least in part, this group. Um, that is, you know, a special level of evil. And, and it is useful to, to say that. 
On the other hand, there, there is this negative side to treating genocide as the ultimate evil because it does have the effect of downgrading what still is really evil you know, other crimes against humanity. The United Nations has just issued a blistering new report about violence against the Rohingya in Myanmar. It says the country's top military general should be investigated and prosecuted for genocide, crimes against humanity and war crimes in Rakhine State. The scale, brutality and systematic nature of rape and violence indicate that they are part of a deliberate strategy to intimidate, terrorize or punish the civilian population. Canada's lower house of parliament has voted in favor of labeling China's treatment of Uyghur Muslims as genocide in a symbolic... You know, two active debates currently are with respect to how do you characterize what the Myanmar army did with respect to the Rohingya, and how do you today characterize what the Chinese government is doing with respect to Uyghur and other Turkic Muslims in Xinjiang. The effect is that if you say it's not genocide, then it's almost as if you're downgrading it when it still is horrible. You know? And so, I mean, in the case of the Rohingya, there's no question that they were targeted you know, because of their ethnicity, because of their religion. But the, the question really is coming down to, you know, was the killing that took place done with the intent of destroying, destroying the group in part, or were the murders and rapes and arson that took place really kind of demonstration murders sufficient to force people to flee? And then the real aim was ethnic cleansing, not the destruction of the group in part. In the case of um, the Uyghurs, it's slightly different. The evidence really of large-scale killings isn't there. But as Paula outlined at the beginning, you know, there, there are other elements of genocide which also speak to the destruction of the group having to do with either, you know, preventing births or transferring children, you know, from their parents to another ethnic group. And some of that is taking place in Xinjiang. Um, there is the transfer of children, particularly when their parents are in detention, they're being put into orphanages, which, um, and these orphanages are basically raising them as, you know, Han Chinese, you know, without their Uyghur um, culture and without their Muslim religion. So that, again, has an element of, of genocide to it. Um, does this all add up to genocide or not? You know, that's the question. Because you don't have the, the classic large-scale killing of genocide because of these other dimensions and because it's so hard to get clear information um, out of Xinjiang right now. So those, that, you know, these are the kinds of difficult debates that take place within genocide, whereas there's no question that what happened to the Rohingya, what's happening today to the Uyghurs, is completely horrible. And this is the downside image. And this is why, you know, if we get too caught up on the genocide question, you know, yes, we're capturing the essence of this. There is an effort to eradicate this group, it seems. But even if you don't have that, what's happening, what these governments are doing, Myanmar to the Rohingya, Beijing to, to the Uyghurs, is completely horrible. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. Danny, I saw you had your hand up there while Ken was talking. Yeah, I wanted to just change a second from the victims so that those who were responsible. Uh, and two points. Number one, we're usually looking at individuals. We're not talking about states. We're talking about particular individuals in a chain of command. And the second point is, if you can identify an individual and a chain of command, how difficult it is to bring that person to justice. And, and we see in history that very few people have been brought to justice and tried for genocide. 
Uh, and isn't that a problem? You say a government treats a minority group within its borders in a way that's reprehensible. The government's going to say you can't, the international community can't interfere in our particular things within the country. I mean, isn't that the answer that comes up all the time? I mean, yes, you know, that's the kind of stale old answer. Nobody takes that seriously. You know, it's like, I mean, the Chinese are repeating that today. The Russians repeat it. But, you know, that's no one takes that seriously. So it is understood that the meaning of international human rights law is that the way a government treats its people is everybody's concern. That's what, in a sense, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that was what was revolutionary there. And so, of course, you know, the the Beijings and Moscows of the world will say, oh, no, you're interfering in my internal affairs, but nobody buys that. Paula? I understand why you say so, but I think this is where we have got a problem because we tend to use this criminal law category. So although we know that states do not commit crimes, but we use those criminal law notions. And indeed, you said that a genocide is the uh, attack against members of a group with intention to eradicate. And therefore, you use the term intention. As you know, indeed, already, it is utterly complicated to say that a governmental policy uh, of conducting massacres against a, a group, even protected group, amounts to genocide because the government always says that they are fighting terrorists because there is a reason or whatever here and there, and they always deny this intention that, of course, makes everything very problematic, I think, and does not really add very much to the debate. And to tell you the truth, the term genocide, as we know very well, it was uh, inserted in the Genocide Convention in particular for criminal law purposes. And I think it has been a mistake, a real big mistake by the International Court of Justice to say in the Bosnia versus Serbia case that this convention was applicable to describe the responsibility of a state to do genocide. Because as I say to my students in class, it's like to take a size S and to put it on a giant. I mean, this definition was crafted to describe the act of genocide entailing criminal individual responsibility. When you wanted to put it on a state, you would never find evidence of the governmental intention to commit genocide unless you have a, a, an holocaust again. And indeed, up to now, the ICJ has pronounced two times on interstate dispute on genocide and did not find evidence in both cases that genocide had been committed by a state. And in Myanmar, it would face the same challenge because they will never find evidence that Myanmar government has an intention to destroy the group. So it's really to give false hopes to the victims. Is that a disappointment to you, Ken Roth? I mean, I think the distinction isn't quite as clear as Paolo's setting out, because when we prosecute somebody for genocide, the truth is we don't really care about the low-level soldier carrying out orders. You know, we want to go after the senior officials anyway. So, you know, in the case of Bosnia, we went after, you know, Ratko Mladic, the, the Bosnian Serb military leader, Radovan Karadzic, the Bosnian Serb political leader. You know, we want these top, top officials, rightfully so. Um, and at that stage, if you're showing the intent of the senior most officials in, you know, a government or a political entity, it's not that different from saying that the state has that intent. We adjourn. Mr. Mladic will be removed from the courtroom. Based upon the factual and legal findings set out in detail in the written judgment, the Chamber finds Ratko Mladic guilty of the following counts. Count 2, genocide. Count 3, 
persecution a crime against humanity? I don't think that the intent of a senior member of a government makes the intent of a country. I think that to find the intent of a collect of a country, in particular in democracy, is not as simple as we say. In the case of Yugoslavia or in dictatorship, one may make this kind of uh, overlapping, but it's more complicated in democracies, perhaps. The many cases where the intent of the senior official is largely the intent of the state, so it's not such an impossible thing. And of course, there'll be harder cases when it is genuinely a division of of power within the government. You know, the kind of governments that tend to carry out genocide tend to have more centralized power. And so, you know, I think we can live with with these complexities in particular cases. Very interesting, because this subject is controversial and has excited quite a lot of debate among human rights activists and international lawyers. And I was hoping we would get some controversy on this program as well. And indeed, we have. What I want to do now is talk about collective responsibility. You can't prosecute a whole country for genocide. But what you can, and perhaps what we should do, particularly even now in 2021, we've seen in the last few years, a lot of populist politics, a lot of othering, as it's called. Should we at least take some collective responsibility for being more aware of the signs of how something can move from a little bit of exclusion and discrimination towards eradication. Danny? Well, I'm fascinated by Imogen, your use of the word we. Uh, who do you mean we? Uh, everyone. You know, and, then, and then you're going to tell me everyone in the international community, and I'm going to say how difficult it is, Ken, to come back to this is what they say, this is what they say. How many people have been actually tried for crimes against humanity and for genocide? Very few. It's very complicated. So pragmatically, what can we do about what's going on when countries, the Russians, the Chinas say it's in our border, and Ken's going to say international law, and they're going to look at you and say, poof. And if you look at the United States in certain respects, it's not much better. So what is actually the we that Imogen's talking about? You asking me? <laughs> well, look, I mean, and perhaps this is very nice, you know, Western democracy, liberal journalist, but I think we should learn from history. In our own societies, you can see this kind of creeping discrimination towards a particular group. The creation of that kind of other allows repressive laws and discrimination. I'm talking about the prevention and how we should be aware in our own heads of the conditions which can lead to terrible crimes. Ken? I mean, Imogen, I think you're, you're correctly noting um, that, you know, genocide is almost always preceded by the dehumanization of the victims. Because, you know, if you genuinely see the victims as other human beings, you're less likely to kill them. You know, and so if you want to kind of mobilize your troops to go out and slaughter people, it's always useful to pretend that they are, you know, either subhuman or that they represent, you know, a lethal threat to you. So yes, those are, um, you know, precursors to genocide, but it is an over-inclusive category because you get many cases of dehumanization. You know, take take the, you know, the the way that you know Viktor Orban talks about migrants to Europe. That doesn't mean that we're about to face a genocide against, you know, immigrants. Nonetheless, I mean, I think wherever we see this kind of dehumanization, the systematic discrimination, it is worth calling out just on its own right, even though it often won't lead to genocide. 
And Danny's question, you know, who's the we? I mean, the we is, you know, the, the governments that purport to promote rights in their foreign policy. And there are always things that can be done. You know, you can push at the UN Human Rights Council, where, you know, even though there are a number of governments on the council that, you know, adopt the, the view that, you know, human rights are an internal affair and they'll never vote for a, a resolution targeting a particular country. Um, in fact, there's a majority of governments on the council that are willing to defend human rights. And so we get a lot done at the council. You know, at the UN Security Council, there's always the concern about the Russian and China veto, but um, you can discuss things at the council without there being a veto opportunity. You just need nine out of the 15 that are willing to put it on the agenda. Um, and so, you know, at minimum, that should be done. There's always a tendency to say, oh, we don't want to offend China. Let's try to work something out. You see this today with Myanmar, which is, you know, not a genocidal situation, but where the junta is, you know, shooting demonstrators. And, um, you know, so far, um, the rights promoting governments of the world have been saying, well, let's bring China along slowly. So they've been putting out these, you know, consensus presidential statements that never impose consequences for the shooting. You know, and is that the right thing to do or should they be pushing for, you know, an arms embargo on the, the junta and, um, you know, cutting off their sources of revenue, the stuff that will really matter. China may veto, but that would then force China to show that it really stands with the junta and not the people of Myanmar, something that is very reluctant to do. So I do think that in, in all of these circumstances, we should push governments that describe themselves as rights promoting to, to do more. These are all urgent situations you know, not necessarily leading to genocide, but nonetheless involving serious human rights violations. And the response should always be public, forceful, generating as much pressure as possible. So Ken, you have actually answered the final question that I had to each of you, and we are actually already running over time. So I'm going to go to Paula and then the final word to Danny. But Paula, for an international lawyer like you, of course, you would ideally never want to stand up in court and have to prosecute somebody for genocide or crimes against humanity, because ideally we don't get to that point. So respond to what Ken was saying there about what our own responsibility towards prevention is. What would what would your view be? Well, do you know the Sisyphus, Sisyphus myth? That's my response. You bring your rock up the hill and it falls down and you start again. That's my response to you. And I think there is no other way. I mean, we cannot be utopian to the point of believing that humanity will be forever cured by this uh, no, tendency to, to, to do bad things towards other human beings and towards the environment. I mean, unfortunately, uh, I, I don't think, but I think that we work, the work we have done so far is an important work. I always say to my students, uh, if you compare the international legal framework of today with international legal framework uh, when my mother was born. I mean, at least we have now rules, institutions. They are not perfect. It's an imperfect garden. We try to do our best. And the only way is to continue to work hard and hard to create a better society. So there is no answer, no other way of doing things. Certainly not to go back in the past. Danny, final words from you then. Sisyphus-like task. No, I'm just impressed when Ken talks about rights defending countries. I would oppose that to transactional countries. Uh, and it seems to me that it's neither one nor the other. Uh, and it's people like Ken and Paula who should be reminding countries all the time that their function is to defend rights instead of just dealing with transactions. Okay. 
Thank you all very much, Paula Gaeta, Ken Roth and Daniel Warner. Again, a subject which we could talk all day about, but I hope at least that we have managed to explain a few things to our listeners out there. So thank you to all the participants. Thank you to you all for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch, including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.